Well, friends, in our time left today, this evening, we're going to keep on thinking about only a prayer meeting. This is the third uh, talk in this series. Uh, just to, if you're, this is the first time you've been to, to one of these talks, only a prayer meeting. Let me catch you up on where we've been and what we've looked at so far. Uh, we get the title for this series, Only a Prayer Meeting, uh, from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, who, who had a, a collection of talks. That you can buy this collection of talks. I'd highly recommend you buy it. They're short little talks that he gave to his church on the nature of their prayer meetings. And he titled the book Only a Prayer Meeting because he has some people who uh, wouldn't attend the prayer meetings because they were only a prayer meeting and they wouldn't come. And so Spurgeon set out to convince his congregation and to encourage his congregation to gather together to pray. And Spurgeon made the comment that the health of the church... And its ability to advance the very kingdom of God depended much upon how much the church prayed. And not just prayed, but prayed together. A church's health and a church's growth, Spurgeon argued, from Scripture, is is very dependent on their prayer life as a body. And so last week I I made the argument that, that, that prayer life begins with prayers of praise. That that is where it should start. It's not where it always has to start, but where it should start is with prayers of praise, with prayers of adoration, standing in awe of who God is. Spurgeon made that argument that if we start with prayers of adoration, it will correct many of our other prayers. And so we made that argument last week that we should be about praising God. And that's why I included the attributes of God in in our handout tonight to help us begin to think about what do we adore God for? We could have put every one of those all under the category of prayer and praise, couldn't we? And tonight we're going to look at the first of the other prayers that then flow out of adoration, and that is prayers of confession. For seeing God for who He is, and then turning the mirror on ourselves, when we see who God is, we can begin to see who we are more accurately, and this should lead us to prayers of confession. But when I say that, I realize that I'm making an assumption. So let me tell you what the assumption is, and then I'm going to try to tease that assumption out in our time together tonight. The assumption is this. When I say that we should go to God in prayers of confession, I'm assuming that we understand why we should even confess, what confession is and and why we should even do it, and what it should actually look like. And so I want to consider those two things. Why do we even confess our sin? And what should it look like? Those are the big two questions I want to answer in our time together tonight. So let's start by thinking of why do we confess sin? Why do we confess sin? There's some of you, kids, or when you were a kid, if you think about why you would confess sin back then, it was always what? When your mom caught you with your hand in the cookie jar, right? You confess when you were caught. Right. And there's a question that we have, I think, that that the Bible kind of creates this tension. Why do we need to confess our sin if Jesus, if we are following Jesus, we have put our faith in Jesus, we have been redeemed by Jesus. If he has forgiven us of all of our sin, right, my sin, not in part, but the whole is what we sing in it as well. If he's forgiven us of all of our sin, why do we need to confess them then? If you don't believe he has forgiven you. Here are a slew of verses from Hebrews. Hebrews 7.27 says this. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, 
first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9, 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then Hebrews 10, 13. It says there, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, continuing to verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when Jesus upon the cross, John 19 tells us, he cries out, it is finished. He actually meant it. We have been forgiven all of our sins. His death one time was enough. So we are covered. I think probably one of the best summaries of this we find in the book of Colossians. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Write that down. Go back and read it tonight. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made together alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so why do I bring this up? Because the foundational thing that we need to understand about confessing sin is that it does not save us. When we confess our sin, it does not save us. This is, this is a, a very Catholic, Roman Catholic idea that, that, that we play some part in our salvation through confession. But we find in the Bible, from the few verses I just read and many, many more, that salvation from beginning to end belongs to God. He saves us, He redeems us, and He keeps us unto eternity. Then what is confession if it's not saving What is confession if it's not salvific, if it doesn't save us? Well, confession, there's a short definition for it, at its root is acknowledging what God has already declared and shown. And that is this, that our sin is sin. Confession is just simply acknowledging that God is right when he says that what we do and what we believe and what we think and what we feel that is sinful. When God says, hey, that's sin. Confession is saying, yeah, you're right about that. This is what confession is. You think about Psalm 32.5. Let me turn there. The psalmist writes, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The psalmist we see here fully admits that his sin is what it is. He does not hide or shy away from it. We're going to think about that more in a minute. We, we, we think about this, especially when we think about verses like 1 John 1, 9, one that we often read in our assurance of pardon after our prayer of confession on Sunday mornings. 1 John 1, 9, many of you have memorized it. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you hear that verse and say, but wait, pastor, you just said that confessing sin doesn't save us. But that verse says that if we confess our sin, then he will forgive us. 
That would be to read the verse out of context. The basis of that reality actually comes from verse 7 of 1 John 1. It's there that it says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That is the root so that our confession is, as I've titled our talk tonight, cleansing. It is refreshing. It renews us. Declaring our sin is a pathway to personally and corporately enjoy the benefits that come with having communion with God. Let me say that again, because I want you to get that. That confessing our sins is taking up the benefits, the joy that come with having communion with God. And we do this personally and corporately, which I'm going to make an argument for here in a minute. And what I mean, though, by cleansing is we confess not to receive salvation, but to display it. And as a pathway back to enjoying it. Confession uproots us out of the muck that we found ourselves in and puts us back in the streams of living water. Confession helps reapply the gospel to our hearts. This is why we can confess freely and together. Freely and together. This is why we don't have to be ashamed when we have our prayer meetings on Sunday evenings and we come to that time of confession for us to confess. In, in the midst of others. Because the one who really matters receives our confession through Jesus Christ. We find this again in Hebrews. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells us this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's Jesus who has ascended. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near, not to the throne of wrath for those who stand outside of Christ, but it has become a throne of grace. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is that cleansing that comes. So, hopefully that convinces you that you should confess your sins. The question then, so what does that actually look like? What does that look like? Do we have a little booth set up in the back or the front of the sanctuary? And me and Pastor David and Pastor Sean sitting there. We each take a few hours and somebody comes in and sits and talks through a screen to us. And we tell them that they're absolved. That's Catholicism, in case you were wondering. Do we get down on our face and pray towards Jerusalem several times every day, hoping that God will receive our our confession? No. What should confession actually look like? Well, let me give you four things, two spiritual and two practical. First, a couple spiritual considerations. Number one, confession, there's two things that confession isn't, spiritually speaking. Number one, confession isn't groveling. Confession isn't groveling. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10 says this. As it is, I rejoice, this is Paul writing, I rejoice not because you were grieved, 
but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So what kind of salvation does godly grief lead to? The kind of salvation that has no regrets. Whereas worldly grief, Paul just puts it straight, produces death. Worldly grief gets you nowhere. And that's what I mean by groveling. This wallowing. This whining. This, oh, woe is me. Oh, poor me. Oh, I'm really messed up. We aren't saying when we confess our sins, woe is me. We don't take the position, to put it frank, of the damned. We take the position of the saved and the redeemed. Biblical confession then is hope-filled. It is filled with hope. It is filled with joy of being released of the bondage that we were in. It is sorrowful, sure. But knowing that His mercies are new and that we are redeemed. Our sin should grieve us, but it should grieve us, as Paul says, into repentance, into confession, and into freedom. Second spiritual consideration then is that confession isn't evasive. Confession isn't evasive. Let's go back to 1 John. We use chapter 1, verse 9 a lot. But very often, or very rarely, do we get to verse 10. Verse 10 says this. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him, speaking of God, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. And so we see another spiritual consideration about confession is it's not evasive. It doesn't try to run away from sin. We don't ignore, we don't shy away from, or we don't avoid our sin. We don't pretend that it's not there and maybe it'll just go away. Some of you grew up in homes like that. I, I, I could testify. Anytime there was conflict in my home, just give it enough time and we'll all sweep it under the rug and pretend like it never happened. Let's just hug and act like everything's okay. But God calls us to be honest and to be open and to lay our sin at His feet and receive cleansing, receive renewal. Confession isn't evasive. Take it straight to the throne with a holy hate. See your sin for what it is and hate it and take it to the throne. One of the things I did this week, see if I can hold it up for you guys. I made a little chart. I still haven't filled it out very much. But it's uh, four by two. So it's eight boxes. You can come look at it afterwards if you want to. And in the two columns, I put omission and commission. And then in the four rows, I put heart, mind, soul, strength. Because that's what I'm supposed to love the Lord with, right? And I started writing out sins of omission for the heart, mind, soul, and strength. And sins of commission for the heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know what omission is, right? Things that you're supposed to do, but you don't do. You omit them. God tells you to read your Bible and you don't read your Bible. You omit that. And then there are sins of commission, right? God tells us not to use our voice to to tear people down. Instead, we we do. Instead of building people up, we tear them down with our voice. We commit sins. It's a good exercise. Think through it. Pick the things that maybe you struggle with. Okay. That gets into the practical. So here's a couple of practical considerations. I don't want to keep us here all night. 
couple practical considerations about prayers of confession. Number one, we can confess our sins to one another. Don't believe me? Let's look at James. See if I can get there quickly. James 5. What always surprises me about this passage, James 5, is he gets at this at the very end of his letter. Which is always like, man, could you just like spent one more paragraph just explaining everything that you're getting at here. So James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, there's some debate about what the kind of healing James is talking about there. I don't have time to get into that tonight. But the big thing here is that it is a command to confess our sins to one another. Our confession of our sin does what? It brings freedom. It brings freedom when we bring our sin into the light, and not just our own light, and not just God's light, but, but into the light of fellowship. You see this in Ephesians 5, 11 and 12. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He's not expo- talking about necessarily exposing works of darkness in other people, but exposing their own works of darkness. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Whatever that looks like, we bring it into the light. So number two, then, we can confess our sins to one another. Number two, or number one, but number two, we can confess our sins together. So to one another and together. So what is then corporate confession? What is corporate confession? Let me give you a short definition. If you don't write this down, I can give it to you in print later. Corporate confession is confessing with or on behalf of a group of believers that is bound together, leading to greater unity, humility, and charity. I want to be clear about that because we live in a time, and so I'm going to get a bit on a bit of a soapbox for like one or two minutes. We live in a time... And we live in a culture, and some of it a Christian culture, that demands that we take up corporate confession for sin that is not our own. Okay? We live in a time that says that we need to, and it's not even godly confession, it is we need to grovel, and we need to lament, and we need to fall apart for things that have happened in the past that, frankly, non-Christians have been a part of. And this is why I don't think that this is biblical. There are several reasons. But number one, if you're confessing sins for somebody who has died outside of Christ and is now spending eternity apart from him in hell, it is a waste of your time to confess their sins. They're lost. They're gone. What is your confession going to do? It's not going to get them out. There's no second chance. So what is corporate confession then? What do we do when, when, I, when I say, confess something for all of us? I believe godly corporate confession, as we see in Ezra 9 and 10, as we see in Nehemiah 7, 4 through 11, as we see in Daniel 9, 13, oh, 3 through 19, in all of those passages, as we see God's covenant people 
confessing the sins of God's covenant people. And so corporate confession looks like us taking up, confessing if there's roots of bitterness in our body. Us taking up, confessing if there's division among us. Us taking up, confessing if we've neglected things like evangelism or church discipline or fellowship with one another. That's what corporate confession should look like. Because we're confessing within the community, within the bonds of fellowship. Okay, y'all got me. That was it. So, one final question then before we close. What does this do for us? What are the benefits of us corporately confessing sin to one another and together? Well, we find first that corporate confession has been a staple of the church for the ages. It's always been a part of the church up until recently when churches stopped liking to talk about sin. Well, we always talk about sin. That's off-putting. People won't show up if you talk about sin. So corporate confession kind of fell out the back door. But when we confess our sins together, it protects us from things like individualism. It protects us from pride and Phariseeism, if I can make up a word. It helps put us in a rhythm that draws us back to Christ week after week after week. And it gives us an opportunity to take up together the breathtaking reality of the gospel itself. Friends, as Jesus cried, Father, forgive them in his death. Together we can cry, Father, we are forgiven. That is the good news of confessing our sins together. So maybe next week, no, in two weeks when we gather to pray again, maybe we'll be encouraged to take up prayers of confession more. All right, let me pray for us. And David's going to come lead us in one more song. Father, we do confess that we need to grow. We need to grow in understanding what it looks like to confess our sin to you, both privately and corporately. So God, we ask that you would grow us as only you can, that your spirit would move and sanctify us as only he can. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.